Now, our Bible reading this morning is continuing Duncan's series, Looking at God With Us. And we're going to read together from Luke chapter 24, Luke 24, and verses 13 through to 31. This is the story of the two disciples and Jesus on the road to Emmaus. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death. And they crucified him. But we had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if we were going further. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened. And they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. Amen. God will bless this reading from his holy word. Today we come to the last in our short summer series, God with us. Last week we looked at Jesus calming the storm. Our Bible reading this week is one that we might often expect to read at Easter time. But I think we'll see this morning that this story is a series of events that have a message for our own lives and living today that's every bit as relevant as it was when it happened some 2,000 years ago. This reading from Luke's Gospel finds two followers of Jesus journeying from Jerusalem to the village of Emmaus when they have an encounter with the risen Jesus. 
These events take place just after the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. Now, the village of Emmaus, Luke tells us, is some seven and a half miles northwest of Jerusalem. The red arrow on there is showing you where Emmaus is, and Jerusalem is where the wee flag is. Luke tells us that one of these followers is called Cleopas. The identity of the other one we're not told. These events, one of the earliest appearances of the risen Christ, are told in some detail here in Luke's Gospel. They're mentioned in passing in Mark's Gospel and they're ignored in the other two Gospels. In fact, this is the first mentioning of the risen Jesus in Luke's Gospel. Scripture tells us that the two followers, disciples of Jesus, are on this road discussing all that had happened. This would be talk of the crucifixion of Jesus, of all that had been lost, of the difficult times. In the midst of their discussion, the passage tells us that Jesus himself drew near and walked with them, but that they were kept from recognising him. I think it's important to understand that the fact that they didn't recognise him, that doesn't necessarily mean that he looked any different. It was simply that in God's sovereignty, they were prevented from identifying him. In the original Greek, it's a passive verb that's used in verse 16. If you think back to your school days, some of our school days are still going on for some of us, if you think back to your school days, that suggests an agent of some kind, in this case God, preventing their eyes from seeing. And it's also a passive verb used at the end of today's passage when their eyes are completely opened. So it's clear here that God is in control. I think it's also maybe a picture of their spiritual blindness, of where their hearts were at right at that time. Perhaps too overwhelmed by the storms of their life, by all that had just happened. Too overwhelmed to see the Lord standing there in their midst. I wonder, have you ever had times in your life when it just seemed to be a bit pointless? How have you felt over the last few months when we hear the news of the war in Ukraine, of violence around our world, of suffering, of hunger? Are there times when you wonder, where is God in all of this? I think it's human to do that. When something happens, maybe, that you can't quite understand, and you're left thinking, why? Maybe it makes you think, what's the point? I think that's maybe where these disciples were on that Emmaus road that day. Like the disciples, sometimes we can become preoccupied with our problems, our disappointments, 
we can become wrapped up in trying to deal with those. So wrapped up that we miss Jesus when he comes alongside us. The storms of life can sometimes prevent us from seeing God with us. When Jesus asks the two disciples about their topic of conversation, they reply by suggesting he must be a visitor here, not to already know the things that have happened. It's really a reply that suggests incredulity at what appears to be how could somebody be this ignorant and not know what's happened? Surely everybody knew. Suggestion here is from that question is that Jesus had been listening to their conversation for some time. And the discussion the disciples were having was perhaps full, I suspect, of many questions, but not so many answers. It's with perfect calmness that Jesus asks them what things. This is asked in order to get them to explain their problem, their difficulty to the Lord, in order that Jesus might help them. Just think for a minute what we're saying. The person at the centre of all those events that have just happened, standing there patiently listening while those events are explained to him, We get a distinct impression here that the two disciples are discouraged, disappointed. This is much more than just feeling sad. The word downcast or sullen is used to describe their demeanour. As Cleopas goes on to tell of the events, the more he talks, the more he reveals his own and his friends unbelief. In verse 21 says this, but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Their hopes have been shattered. The impression here is that they were discouraged and disappointed because God hadn't done what they expected them to do, what they wanted them to do. They had seen Jesus as one who had come to redeem Israel. But like so many of that time, couldn't see beyond the present, beyond the notion of redemption from under the yoke of the Roman Empire. A narrow and now redemption, rather than the much greater redemption that's offered by the death and resurrection of Christ. They saw the glory, but didn't understand the suffering. So where are we? The band of Jesus' followers were leaderless and falling apart, with two of them, these two, already on their way home. The reports they've heard of Christ's tomb being empty didn't really do anything to alter their thinking. Perhaps it only confused them further. Their entire world, really, had come apart. 
And all of that is summed up in that statement, we had hoped. The very statement had hoped suggests a present absence of hope, a despair, a not knowing where to turn now. You know, hope's a fragile thing. And when it withers, it can be difficult to revive. Hopelessness as a disease of the human spirit is desperately hard to cure. It can lead, I suppose, to a fear of ever hoping again because you feel you can't cope with another letdown. These two disciples on the road to Emmaus had built a wall of hopelessness around them and they were trapped in their misery. In essence, what they were saying by that statement, we had hoped, was that they didn't expect it now. I wonder if that's something any of us can identify with this morning. Maybe of a time when circumstances, the difficulties of life, get in the way of our relationship with God, prevent us from truly believing that God will move. Becoming overwhelmed by the storms of life. Storms that on our own, maybe we can't see a way to overcome. So overwhelmed that we fail to see that God is there with us. Asleep in the back of the boat, to go back to where we were last week. If so, I believe the events of this story speak powerfully to us. Because the heartbreaking experience, the hopelessness in this Emmaus story, is only the beginning. It was into the midst of this hopelessness, this misery and despair, that the risen Lord Jesus Christ himself stepped on that dusty Emmaus road. Did God ever promise that it would be plain sailing for Christians? That life would all be easy? No. But what he did promise is that he will always be there with us. Scripture tells us in Deuteronomy 31, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Just think about that for a moment. No matter what we might be going through, how hopeless a situation might seem, the Lord God Almighty is there with us. I'm reminded of that poem Footprints in the Sand, that I'm sure many of you will be familiar with. It paints an image of walking on the beach with the Lord and of looking back on the journey travelled and questioning the fact that when looking at the footsteps, when times were really hard, there appeared to be only one set of footprints. 
That poem ends with the realisation that there was only one set of footprints in those most difficult, challenging times of life. Because it was at those times that God carried you. I want to tell you this morning that God is with us. He's here for us today just as he was on that dusty Emmaus road some 2,000 years ago. He will meet us in our despair, in our hopelessness, and he'll minister to us just as he did then. Jesus graciously walked with our travellers and listened to their, I suspect, animated and heated conversation. They were perhaps quoting various Old Testament prophecies and trying to remember what Jesus had taught them, but perhaps couldn't quite put it all together. They were maybe asking questions like, but why did he have to die? Was he a success or a failure? Is there a future for Israel? It was into this context of despair, of hopelessness and unbelief that the risen Jesus arrived. We're told in Romans chapter 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. This explains why Jesus went on to open the word of God to these two men as the three of them walked to Emmaus that day. He takes them through biblical prophecy, explaining, we're told, all that the scriptures said concerning himself. Just think, that must have been the greatest exposition of the Old Testament in history from the Lord God himself. It was through this jigsaw of the types, shadows and symbols of the Old Testament revelation that began to come together that day. I know that some parts of the Old Testament can be harder to read. And I've even heard some people say that they only really read the New Testament because it's easier and that they don't tend to go into the Old quite the same. Thing is, the Old Testament is crucial to our understanding of the New Testament. Have a look here. If I open my Bible at the start of the New Testament. So there's the New Testament, and there's the Old. So if we're to kind of not really go in there much, we're ignoring a huge, huge part of God's Word. I want to take a few minutes this morning to touch on some of the Old Testament prophecies, shadows and types of Christ. Now, some Bible scholars count as many as 354 Old Testament prophecies fulfilled by Christ. Don't worry, I'm not going to touch on them all this morning. To cast your mind back to when we looked at Genesis a few weeks ago, Christ's victory at Calvary is prophesied immediately after the fall of mankind in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. 
says, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. What a wonderful anticipation of Jesus' victory at Calvary. Written in Genesis thousands of years before Jesus was born in that Bethlehem manger. Genesis 22. Think of the story of Abraham and Isaac. Of Abraham laying down his only beloved son, Isaac, on the altar. A picture of what Christ would do for us at Calvary. Think back to Israel's exodus from slavery in Egypt and being saved from the angel of death through the shed blood of the Passover lamb. Just as Christ's blood would be shed for us. The angel of death would pass over, hence where the name comes from, at the sight of the blood. The same way we avoid the penalty of our sin, death, because of the shed blood of Christ. It's absolutely amazing how all of Scripture connects together so beautifully. When the Israelites were instructed to apply the shed blood of the Lamb to their doorpost, they were instructed to use a branch of the hyssop plant to apply it to the doorpost with. At Calvary, when Christ was crucified, it was a hyssop plant that was used to raise the sponge to his lips. Hyssop that is suggestive of cleansing and renewal. What Jesus presented here to the travellers was proof that he had fulfilled all that had been prophesied down through the centuries. That these Old Testament anticipations of his passion, his triumph of life over death, proved he was indeed the Messiah. As we're told in the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, he was pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. Punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds we are healed. It wasn't that our two disciples that day hadn't read the Old Testament prophecies. It's maybe that they had been selective and had laid their emphasis on the notion of a triumphant Messiah who would be victorious. And that the suffering servant pictured in Isaiah maybe didn't fit with those expectations. The difficulty for the two disciples that day was how to make sense of the cross. How to accept it. Jesus helped them do that through scripture. He showed them through the word of God that it is part of God's great redemption plan for mankind. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. The cross of shame and suffering had become the cross of redemption. For whosoever will come to Jesus in repentance 
and faith. This book, friends, is God's love letter to mankind. From Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21, it tells the story of God's love for mankind, his great redemption plan, the atoning sacrifice of his son Jesus. Just think, before the dawn of time, the Lord God Almighty, creator of this world, knew through foreknowledge that man would fall, and he knew the solution was in the cross. He knew he'd have to send his son to die. He knew his redemption plan right there and then. What often strikes me is that if we accept as scripture tells us that God knows everything past, present and future, then God knew what his son would have to go through. How he would be mocked, tortured, beaten. Still he sent him. And he also knew how the secular world at large now in 2022 would view his son. How they would mock his sacrifice. Question his resurrection. Even question his very existence. But despite all that, God's love for us was so great that he still sent his son, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us as an atoning sacrifice for all. Verse 28 tells us, as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he was going further. See, Jesus will never force himself where he's not really wanted. The Lord God gave us the most precious gift, the gift of free will. And we can use that to invite Christ or allow him to pass on. This is pictured vividly in Revelation 3.20. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with them and them with me. I want to show you on the screen a rather well-known painting of this scene. Now, if you look closely at the painting there, do you notice anything unusual about the door? Do you notice anything missing on the door? that you might expect to see. There's no handle on the outside of that door. The handle of this door is only on the inside and can only be opened by us. We're told that Jesus acted as if he was going further. I suppose that was really a test to see if the disciples wanted more of the things of God. Luke says they urged Jesus strongly to stay with them. 
That's the kind of invitation Jesus wants, that kind of urgency. And Jesus went with them. They spent time, had a meal with Jesus. He took bread and broke it, blessed it and gave it to them. Just as we need to be broken from the flesh to become a new creation in Christ. And at that instant, their eyes were opened and they knew him. Their minds and hearts were now illuminated by holy intervention. Jesus personally had unlocked their hearts. So often, I think there are times when we find ourselves there too. Something happens and we realise, oh my goodness, this has been God all the time. Maybe we've been moaning and feeling sorry for ourselves and God opens our eyes to what he is doing. We're thankful and we rejoice, but at the same time we realise we didn't pick up on the signs that God was working all along. Even in the darkest of hours, God is at work. There is no time when God has turned his back on us. We may not know about it. We may not always recognise it at the time. But God is always at work to make us better believers and to further his kingdom and to take care of us, his children. His children whom he loves with a never-ending love. A love beyond our comprehension. After their eyes were opened, scripture says, then he vanished. Why did Jesus have to disappear? Couldn't he have stayed longer? Perhaps it was all part of the education of his last 40 days on this earth. How to manage without his bodily presence, just as we have to do now, 2,000 odd years later. But he has kept his promise. We are not alone. He is with us through his Holy Spirit each and every day. Our Bible passage today tells us that the two disciples described their hearts burn within them while Jesus walked with them and opened up the scriptures to them. Their world had come together again. I would argue that we all need that heart-burning experience of God, that close communion with our Father, the one who created us. God deeply longs for each and every one of us to walk with him in close fellowship. God with us. There are going to be dark times, storms in our lives, Times when we don't know where to turn or what to do. But during those times, we can be rest assured that even though we may not actually see him, Jesus is there walking beside us. God with us. Just as he travelled with Emmaus too on that dusty road, 
He will travel with us if we let him. As believers, his Holy Spirit lives inside of us, the power of Almighty God. What an amazing God we serve. Do we want that heart-burning experience of God that the two disciples spoke of? A burning that will sweep through our lives, not just here in this place on a Sunday morning, but each and every corner of our lives. A burning that will touch this world for Christ through us. A burning that will enlighten our understanding and take us to a new level in our experience of God. A burning that will ensure our lives are never the same again. He's standing at the door and knocking. Will you invite him in? Amen.